morning again, everyone. I, um, we have been in a series, an Eastertide series, because we are in that season of uh, Easter time or the Paschal season, a season that the church reflects on the period after Christ's resurrection and before Christ's ascension. The Apostle Paul, when he was describing the Christian message, essentially he said, the good news is that Christ, of course, lived and that he died, he was buried, he was resurrected. And not that it's obscure in quantity because the largest portion of his description of the Christian message was saved for that last part of the gospel. He said not only did Christ live, die, was he buried, was he resurrected, but he was seen. And uh, he gives a lot of attention to who saw him and what it meant to see him. And so we're really spending that time 2,000 years later knowing that that season, that first Easter season, was not just a historical fact that we're supposed to regurgitate and think about what it meant to them, but it actually is a spiritual archetype. It's a spiritual pattern that means a lot to us now, 2,000 years later. So the Easter season for me, that season between the resurrection and the ascension, it's a time of reorientation. It's a time of readjustment. It's a time of reframing. They didn't simply recapture Jesus as they knew Jesus, but Jesus came alive for them in ways that they could have never imagined. And this was very difficult for them. And for me, Jesus embodies the dynamic movement and life of God. I think that's a, that's a good way of saying it. Jesus is the embodiment of the dynamic life of God that cannot be captured, that cannot be um, cordoned off, that cannot be put in a box. Jesus is the dynamic life of the universe, the dynamic life of all that is. This is, this is what we call the Christ, the Christ that John 1 said was before the physical body. It was actually the Word that became flesh, but that Word had been with God and was always with God. And so the Easter season is about that dynamic movement of God. <clears throat> And the last couple of weeks, we've been talking, looking at the characters that were involved in that first story, people like Mary and Peter and Thomas and the disciples and the Emmaus-bound disciples. Uh, the encounters that Jesus had with the people that Paul literally delineates in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, these encounters, almost every one of them occurred with Jesus meeting people who had loved him and yet now had an incapacity to see him. When they saw him, many times they didn't recognize him. Like Mary at the tomb, she thought he was a gardener. The Emmaus-bound disciples just thought he was another traveler. Um, and on and on it goes. And so we've looked at each of their lives, and over the last couple of weeks we've talked about things like fear, things like regret, past failures, disappointment, doubt, existential doubt, grief things that actually can close our eyes, things that can impair our eyes, with the eyes being the window of the soul, literally things that can close the soul down to seeing what we need to see. And in every one of the cases, it was beautiful, Jesus always ministered to whatever it was. He didn't promote the resurrection and he didn't argue theology. Um, he didn't even call them to attention that it was him at the moment, but as a gardener and as a traveler, 
He ministered to their fears, their regrets, their disappointments, their doubts, their griefs. And when their eyes became sufficiently healed, then the soul opened up. And so we all know that story. Today I wanted to talk about another eye closer, another soul closer, one that probably all of us experience at some, to some degree, at some level in our life at some point, if not over and over again. Another thing, another disposition, another attitude, another reality that all of us face that has the tendency to close our eyes, to keep us from seeing the dynamic life of God, to keep us from seeing the Christ, from, that keeps us from seeing life as it's called to be seen, as we are called to see it. And we could describe it several ways, but I'll, I'll use a few terms for it, this soul closer that we all face. Um, one term for it is presupposition. Another word for it is, or a phrase for it, is preconceived ideas. In other words, what we think we know and all of the restrictions that come with that, there is the possibility that those things, if we're not care careful, can keep us from seeing what is because we are so concerned with what was and what we think we know. I've mentioned before three great books at three different times in my life that all kind of speak to this idea, specifically about Jesus. I remember years ago, one of the best books that I'd ever read at the time was a book by Philip Yancey, a man that we had speak here for us a couple of years ago. Yancey was one of my great authors, and Yancey, I, I don't mean this pejorative, but Yancey was a gateway drug for me as an evangelical. Um, and I mean drug in the best sense of the word. Yancey is one of the ones that opened me up. It was Yancey's bibliography, not just what he wrote, but who he read, that really began to move me. I remember my favorite book of his was Soul Survivor, where he literally listed and wrote a chapter about, I think, the 13 most influential authors in his life. And once I found those authors, um, it really is true. If you want to know what somebody really thinks, don't listen to what they write. Read who they read. Uh, Sometimes we write for our milieu, for our audience. We write within the bounds of vocational safety. But if you really want to know what our writer's thinking, read who they read. And I figured that out. And uh, Yancey's been a big impactor in my life. But one of his best books was called, uh, along the lines of this idea of preconceived ideas, presuppositions, fixed ways of thinking, he wrote a great book called The Jesus We Never Knew. And he kind of got outside of his own hula hoop there with the plural we. I, I, I think he could have just said the Jesus I never knew. Because you really can't suppose other people's journeys, but we have a tendency to do that. But I like that title, the Jesus I never knew. Implication being that like the disciples, Yancey had been with Jesus within the confines of Christianity for a long time. And then somewhere along the way met a Jesus that he did not know, that he had no way of uh, preparing for. Uh, another book that I read that was really influential and for people coming from traditional backgrounds who are really exploring progressive Christianity, this is a wonderful, wonderful primer. And it's a book by uh, Brian McLaren, one of his early books called Generous Orthodoxy. It's a profound book, a really, really good book. But in that, in a, in a chapter, the chapter is not even titled this, but in one of the early chapters, Yancey had a little uh, section of that chapter called The Seven Jesuses I've Known. And he walked through um, 
the first Jesus of his early conversion, his early life, um, the Jesus that he met in college, and then the Pentecostal Jesus that he met. You, you get what he's saying. There's really not um, seven Jesuses, and yet in our notion of Jesus, you understand the seven Jesuses. I mean, couldn't you agree? Haven't you known some different Jesuses over the course of your life? And then perhaps the most academic of the three and the most progressive of the three, one that I found later was by one of my favorite authors uh, who recently passed away. It was a tremendous loss, Marcus Borg. And Marcus Borg, one of the greatest titles and one of the greatest books, it's always great when a book actually has a great title. Borg wrote a book called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. I love that. Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. Because the reality is in every one of these places where we meet the dynamic life of God, it feels like the first time. That's why I've always said the born-again experience cannot be a singular experience. Uh, for me, I have experienced the feeling of being born again and again and again. When, when I, and I don't even know how to say this anymore, but I'll say it a few ways and maybe some of them will rest with you. When I met God the first time, when I experienced the ground of all being, the divine for the first time, when I, because some would say you're always experiencing God whether you know it or not, because in, in God we live and breathe and have our being. But when I, when I met or experienced God, or, or maybe even my concept of God for the first time, I can't remember. I'm, I'm quite sure though it proceeds my ability to recollect it. And I'm also sure the moment preceded my ability at the time to even comprehend what was occurring. I believe strongly that I met God, that I experienced the ground of all being before I met my mother. I agree with what David was intuiting in the 139th Psalm when he said, you, O God, knit me together in my mother's womb. There was presence there. I was with God. Um, I love the report of Elizabeth when Mary met her in the hill country of Judea, entered her house and simply greeted her. Luke 141 says that at the sound of Mary's greeting, this pregnant Mary, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, John the Baptist, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, I think there are experiences of God, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty certain there are experiences of God that are pre-critical that are pre-rational, that are pre-intellectual, that are pre-academic, that are and uh, will always be very real. Following whatever experiences of God or the understanding of God or the divine that I had as a child, very early, those pre-language experiences, following those, I immediately, as language began to develop, I immediately, and I think I'm telling many of your stories, I began to be told about God. What had happened to me, what I had experienced, began to be explained to me. And I began, as a very young child, growing up in the church, to be introduced to ideas about God. Uh, my earliest ideas of God were that God was the source of everything. God was the creator. I was told specifically that God was personal, that God was an individual being, a construct that still works best in my mind. I know a lot of you 
have a sense of God as a bit more of a cosmic whole and a force, and I understand that, and I'm sure it points to a reality. But for whatever reason, those earliest visions of God as an individuated being who has personality and relates to me, that's what I was told, and it still is a part of my, my experience, my understanding. So God was a creator, God was a person or an individual. Uh, I was told that God was interactive. I was told that God um, was not on the backside of the ether and we were untouched, that God was a part of our life, intricately woven in. I was told that God was wise, that God was right about everything, that God couldn't make mistakes, that God was all-powerful, that God was loving. I was also told that God was holy, that God was righteous. And because of this, God carried within God's nature a very difficult tension between loving everybody and yet being forced to judge everybody. And that only God could do that appropriately, but be sure God would. Most of what I learned about God, I learned within the Christian church, as again, many of you, most of what I learned about God, I learned by studying the life of Jesus. I was told if you want to know about God, study the life of Jesus, because Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what I learned about God, I learned studying the life of Jesus. And what I learned about Jesus, I learned from the Bible. And I learned from the Bible this life of Jesus that indicated the life of God. And it's very important now as I reflect on that to know that what I learned about the Bible, I learned from a small church on Scott and Porter Street in Perigold, Arkansas. I learned from the teachers at that little church. I didn't even learn those things actively, perhaps passively, and perhaps more impactfully from my parents. But in that world, uh, parents did not defer, but they certainly uh, they didn't deflect, but they did defer that the primary teacher was the church. So when my dad and mom, you know, when my dad, when my dad and mom, who may be watching right now, when they struggle with how much I push the envelope, I tell them, the, you know, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree because they were always pushing the envelope. The way I'm pushing the envelope now feels different than the way they were, but it was the same thing. My mom was that young woman that had a good brain and just when the church told her she couldn't cut her hair that God she just could not figure out how that made sense so my mom was that she wasn't a dissident but she would cut her hair and she would get taken off of the organ and she couldn't play I remember one time the preacher came by the house and he told her sister Shirley you've sinned if you'll repent and wear your hair up so people can't see the cut ends we'll put you back on the organ and my mom said, my mom said, no, thank you. Um, sounds foolish to you, but my dad was the guy who let us play Little League Baseball. And so we were always fodder for the evangelists that came through because Little League Baseball was a worldly amusement. And we weren't supposed to do those things. So sorry, mom and dad, y'all were the ones who taught me to look at authority. And to say, and I don't feel like I built up because I'm as codependent as anybody. I don't, I don't like people not liking me. I do not enjoy argumentation. You know, for you, you, if you follow me on Facebook, you see every pushing 
post that I make, I then make a conciliatory post because I want people to get along. So um, the reality is I remain grateful. I, I really do. I remain very, I, I never have been one of those guys that looks back and say, my God, what was all that angry and bitter. I remain very grateful for the blessing of that church that I believe deeply with its teachers was doing the best it could with what it had from where it came from. I remain deeply grateful for the church's deep tradition and I'm, I remain deeply grateful for scripture and that's why I've gathered again on Wednesday night. We had a wonderful time this last Wednesday night looking back at the text and learning to appreciate this text and to read it appropriately. I, I told the people two weeks ago, you know, we, we, we grew up being told the Bible was infallible and inerrant. Well, I don't believe the Bible's inerrant. I don't believe it was ever intended to be inerrant. I do believe it's infallible. And infallible and inerrant are two different things. Inerrant means without any flaws. And I think the beauty of our text is not just that there's divinity there, but the hum human weaving through the text and all the flaws that come with it, all the cracks in the vessel that come with it. But infallible is not the same as inerrant. Infallible simply means it won't fail you. And I don't believe any sacred literature, ours or others, I don't believe sacred literature will ever fail you if you use it appropriately. But if you use it inappropriately, then it, it, it's not failing you, you're failing it. So sacred literature like the Bible, if we read it contextually and appropriately and understand the incredible mix of poetry and prose that it is, truth and fact that it is, then it won't fail you. So I remain deeply grateful for scripture and I am forever indebted to those, you know, the Ricky Etheridge's and the Sybil Carter nations and the Moselle Eubanks and um, all the people that I remember in those little classes who lovingly and freely gave to me, expecting nothing in return except for me to be helped and to be blessed. Uh, words cannot tell how increasingly appreciative I am to those who first introduced me to the Bible, to Jesus, and to God. The process by which I was instructed was naturally at the outset a very mechanical and technical one. I was taught a litany of doctrinal ideas. We were taught to memorize scripture. Um, I have degrees now, graduate degrees in theology, but they are not the reason I can quote so much scripture. All the scripture that I always quote has nothing to do with my academic training. I learned all of that before I was 15 years old. That's why it's always in the King James Version. If you'll notice, all of my quoting is in the King James. Um, and so all this material that I know, I, I know theology because I've studied as an adult, but the memorization was because we were taught to memorize scripture. We, we memorized entire Pauline books uh, when we were just children. We had Bible sword drills. We would go and compete quoting scripture. I was taught a lot of doctrinal ideas and constructs about God. They told me this was God's definition. They told me this is who Jesus was and is and always will be. Drew, I see you smiling. It's the truth, right? Assembly of God. Salute. We know that. And you Southern Baptist, Nazarene, Church of Christ, you know this. We were told this was who Jesus was and is. And we were also told this is absolutely what Scripture meant. We grew up 
with people telling us the Bible says, right? Or the Word says. I've had at least a dozen people this week on my Facebook post tell me the Bible says. I, I, Sometimes I get so frustrated, I want to just scream. Do you not think I know the heck what the Bible says? I mean, the... And boy, I, I pulled a punch right there because I get to feeling aggravated. It is so... The, the arrogance and the presumption of people... You know, to just totally dismiss your perspective because they know what... Whew. And then I think maybe the reason that angers me so much because if you spot it, you got it. And maybe they feel that I'm doing the same thing to them. And I have to go back and reread my post. Because everybody on our side of the issues think the other side's being mean. And everybody on their side think we're being mean. And maybe we're all reading through lenses that we can't possibly fully understand the others. But God have mercy. We should be drawn to compassion for one another in this. They told me that there were things that all of us could unequivocally expect of God. They told me the Bible had, my people told me the Bible had one message. And that for the first 100 years of the Christian church, it was clearly known and then the church went dead for 1800 years and our little group had resurrected the truth and nobody anywhere on my post this week carried the level of presumption of certainty that I grew up with um, the information was dispensed to me in the same way that math and science and English and social studies were people larger than me people who had lived longer and knew more, authority figures authorita authoritatively said this is the way it is. And I was vulnerably ignorant in the strictest sense of that word. I was vulnerably impressionable. I was, as I often say, I was like every child's mind and soul, wet concrete. And you know about wet concrete. You can leave prints in it very easily. And those of us who are 49 that are doing therapeutic work and going to groups and still working on our soul, we often come across impressions that are made in the contour of our soul. And the problem is at 49, the concrete hardens, doesn't it? And things that at 5 and 7 and maybe even 11 could have been troweled over, now you have to take jackhammers of therapy to break those things up. And it's hard, but it's, it's worth it. But when I was still wet concrete and, and, the, and the tiniest bird's print could be made on my soul, um, I was told things about God. Gladly today I can say that much, though not all, of what I learned continues to serve me. Some of it serves me as things that I still believe, some of it serves me as things that they serve as an anti-gospel. They serve, as I often say, they serve as, as the, uh, the negative, the black velvet backdrop against which the diamond of truth shines now. Uh, for this, I sincerely restate my gratitude. I have a good friend who's taught for years uh, German romantic literature 
over at Vanderbilt. And he's a humanist plus. He's a, he's a reverent agnostic like a lot of folk. And a, a very wonderful man. And he blew off organized religion years and years ago. And yet he raised his children in the Roman Catholic Church carefully and meticulously. And that's always been strange to me. And here while back I was over at his house and I said, why would you raise your children? And this is no pop shot at the Roman Catholic Church or the Southern Baptist Church. It was just the pedagogy of his parenting. I said, why would you, knowing you didn't believe that, raise your children Roman Catholic? And he said, well, I, I just felt like I needed to give them something to reject. And that's not as crazy as it sounds, actually. I think it may have been extreme, you know, to put them all through that. But I think we do need some of that in, in our process of developing souls and developing minds. I was also taught something else in those early days, those formative days, that I still hold dear. I was taught that God, I was taught that God could not only be thought about, but in that little Pentecostal world, we teach at a fevered pitch that not only could God be thought about, but God can be experienced directly. I still hold that, although I hold it very differently. I was taught that God could be experienced, that God could be known. And those who taught me this wonderful truth taught me ways that God could be known. And it generally... It generally was quite emotional. This is going to sound very strange to some of you, but you know what it's like to feel goosebumps. When you have an experience with life and you just get goosebumps, you just get a shiver all over you, right? I was taught at an early age, we went to church four or five times a week. Our music was profoundly emotional, very derivative and very driven. And I was taught the first place that I really began to experience goosebumps as a child was in church and I was taught that was the Holy Spirit touching me and so I literally as strange as this might seem to you and I was a I was a reasonably smart kid but kids are impressionable Drew I was taught that those goosebumps was the Holy Spirit coming from heaven and moving over me and I was also taught, because we were not eternally secure, we were eternally insecure in the worst way. But I was taught that that, that not just the experience, but I was taught God come, that God came and went. And so if you're taught that God comes and goes, and if you're taught, I mean, to be seven years old and in a matter of 24 hours to go, Angela, from thinking that you're going to heaven to thinking that you might be burning forever, that's a lot for a seven-year-old psyche to endure. So I knew that if God left me because I did something wrong, that, that I, could go to, I could go to hell. And I knew that the rapture was going to take place any minute. So it was a very spooky thing. And I also knew that when I felt goosebumps that that was God. So I began in every way I could to engender goosebumps. Now this might sound ridiculous to you, but I'm telling you, everybody has a measure of this to some degree that have been raised in the Christian tradition. Uh, I, I began to know that if I could just experience goosebumps that, that God was with me. And the place I experienced the most was in church, so I stayed in church as much as I could. 
but I couldn't always be in church, so I began to learn how to experience goosebumps not at church. And it literally became a physiological experience for me. I was 25 years old before I realized that what I was doing was holding my shoulder blades in juxtaposition against my spine. And if I move my arms, think about what religion does to people. <laughs> I was 25 years old before I looked back, Alexa, and, and realized that I could move my shoulders a certain way against my spine and make, I, did, I just did it. Holy Ghost just hit me just then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it right now. Y'all forgive me. This is good. It feels good. <laughs> I would literally, physiologically, Doug, manufacture God. Now, it may not have been that extreme for you, but what I was doing physiologically, anatomically, physically, a lot of you have learned to do psychologically, haven't you? To, to have some sense of certainty. Because those who taught us the wonderful truth that God could be experienced quickly and definitively added one disclaimer. And the disclaimer said that all of my experience of God would always have to fit within the borders and limits of the teachings they had disseminated to me. I'll say that again. Whatever experience of God I might have, Tanner, it had to fit within this box. And, and so I, I quickly began to understand that the experience of God was a wonderful thing, that, but it was very boxed in and it was very limited. Um, to their idea that God could be personally engaging, that idea came from Scripture. Um, I was taught, and I think rightly so, that the Bible is not primarily a set of doctrines, nor is it the record of people interpreting and reinterpreting written theology. But one thing the Pentecostals did do, we, we did have the sense that we needed to look up from the page of the text and see God. And so for me, I was taught very early on, there's a lot about the Pentecostal faith that I could say that is very progressive in nature. I was taught not from liberals first, but from my Pentecostal forebears that things could be hidden in the text for a long time only to be revealed. Pentecostals definitely believed that because we thought the church had literally been reading the text blindly and then in the 20th century somehow the text came alive to us. So I didn't get that from the liberals, I got that from my conservative Pentecostal upbringing. So they told us that the Bible was the recorded history of hundreds and thousands of people's experiences with God. And I understood that and they invited us and they said you are not supposed to live vicariously over a dusty text and the stories of your heroes. The same experience Moses and Abraham and David and Elijah had, you can have that same experience. They told me that the Bible's pages are filled with the electric stories of people who experience the sacred, the divine, the spirit of God. And, and the reality is, while I believe that, I don't think we were the only people in the world experiencing the divine. That's where my pluralism comes in. That's why I tell you that I am unashamedly Christian and unapologetically interfaith. Because exclusivism says that 
that there is a God and that God has related to people that based upon the whimsy and the caprice of something we don't know that kind of gets localized in culture and geography and time, God only speaks to a group, certain group of people. And that group of people have the truth and the way they articulate the experience of God is the only way. And the rest of the world be damned or saved depending upon whether they have access to that story. I, I, just don't, I just don't buy that. It seems to me that as I study human history that long before our religious forebears directly in Judaism and Christianity were experiencing God, it seems to me... I mean, you don't have to do a careful freshman-level study of anthropology or history or even the sociology of religion to know that almost from the earliest, from the earliest homo sapiens, their eyes were cast upward and inward and they were longing. And my robust pluralism says that where there has always been God, there has always been humans and there has always been a mutual longing and that mutual longing is magnetic and it has drawn people together with God. And in the interaction of the divine and the human, the interaction is so profound that it has to be told. And the only way it can be told is through oral tradition and language. And people do the best they can to communicate something that can't be communicated. Um, the Apostle Paul, when he came back from this interaction that he had with God, he said he saw things that were literally unutterable. They were ineffable. And they just could not be spoken. And yet after admitting, I can't speak them, I can't explain them, the Apostle Paul said, I'll try. But to try to speak of the experience we have with God, almost dis it distorts it immediately. It, it impairs it immediately. And I've got to tell you, I have had a few experiences in my life that I have not told more than a couple of times. Probably the greatest experiences in my life, Dale, I've never told because they are so impossible to tell that I feel like I would be demeaning them to tell them. And they were so profound that Aaron, to try to explain it to you, would set you up to, to just be dubious and doubtful and critical because they sound so crazy, because I can't explain them and they're too precious for me to subject them to scrutiny. And they were just for me. I don't believe I'm the only one that had that. And I don't believe Christians and Jews are the only ones who've had that experience. And I think over time, those shared stories accumulate. And over generation, those accumulations of stories begin to create religion that over time and century formalizes. And how dare any one group of people based upon geography or space of time look at other whole groups of people and say, no. Your experience was illegitimate. The reason I am unashamedly Christian is because Christianity has not given me those experiences, but it has given me, it has, it has prompted me toward them, and it has given me a sufficient language to describe them. And I have a ton of capital and equity in this religion, and I've got to admit that my pluralism leans kind of inclusive because I still cannot imagine and some of you totally disagree with this because your experience of Christianity is still kind of sour for you but I still cannot imagine another language, set of symbols or narrative 
more moving than an appropriately understood message of Jesus. So there's that. So I'm kind of an enigma, but he moves me deeply. And if there's a better story, I hadn't found it. And I love our accumulation of stories. What I don't love and what almost makes me want to leave us all the time is how exclusivistic and selfish and arrogant we have been to look at entire bodies of people and to miss their experience. We have, if we had any capacity to share the beauty of our Jesus experience, we have almost shot ourselves completely in the foot by meeting them and diminishing them so sorely that we have no credibility. Enough of these experiences were journaled to begin giving this is the way religion develops. Enough of these experiences are journaled to begin giving people a general idea of what could be expected in subsequent encounters. And this is where our problem starts. We have enough of these experiences that as people are sharing their experiences, common denominators begin to develop. And out of those common denominators, we begin to miss the multiplicity and the variety of as William James said, the variety of religious experience and we begin to really focus in and we begin to pick and choose the ways that we think are best to experience God. And the question of how general or specific our expectations can be is a matter of conjecture and um, I was taught strict specificity and expectation. I'll say that again and many of you were. Catholic, Church of Christ, Baptist, Pentecost, we were taught strict specificity and expectation. So like most people, I was taught about God, and like many, I was then encouraged to meet Him. And I rehearse all of this respectfully because even now, I can't think of a better way to do this with our children. I think we still do the same thing with our children. I think I'd still do the same thing with my children as my parents did with mine. I just am encouraging less specificity of expectation. Does that make sense? I, I want them to know that there's something. I want them to know that there's something very real. And if I could add one thing to the regimen, it would be this. The regimen that was given me. I would add something that I don't think I was taught, and that is that an understanding already, an experience already exists in children at some level. These children that we're indoctrinating may not need indoctrinated because I think our children already at some mysterious level have met God and have an instinctive aptitude to know God. You say, well, where'd you get that from? Uh, Jesus? A lot of times when people were arguing, Jesus would pull a child in his lap and say, you want, you want to get the kingdom of God? Right here. Except, literally, he wasn't just saying children's sweetness is what heaven's all about. He literally looked at religious leaders and said, unless you see the way this child sees, you will not see the kingdom of God. It wasn't about entering it and being saved and all of that stuff in, in the old sense of the word. But Jesus was saying, what all of you really need to do is mature back into childhood. And I do think there's a difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. I think a lot of us have a very childish faith when what we're being called to is a childlike faith. Jesus said they see in ways that 
you need to relearn because you knew them when you were this child, but you were taught not to trust those intuitions. You were taught, you were taught not to be a child. You were taught to let go of those things. But Jesus was looking at a child and then looking at us, knowing that child still existed in us, and we longed for that. And Jesus was saying, you can trust this. You can trust this. The process of rearing our children to know God has been common to humanity for as long as we have been here. What has also been common to us in the process of developing an interactive relationship with God is this. And I'm bringing this to a, a close today and we'll pick up again next week. As a person grows into life through the normal stages of infancy and childhood and adolescence, pre-adulthood, etc., etc., as the child grows, most people, self-included, have life experiences which challenge and in some ways disprove their beliefs, even their religious faith, or seemingly disprove them. I've said all along that if my kids come to me one day and say, Dad, I don't I don't think I'm a Christian, that I will trust them and let them take their journey and I'll be fine. And I faced that with my 18-year-old this week. I don't know why that makes me want to cry. I think it's part happy, honestly, and part scared to death. Uh, because I have not, you know, you think, did I show him something so bad? You know, I remember when he was 10 and people say, what do you want to do? And he'd say, a preacher? And I'd say, and now somebody says, hey, what do you want to do? I don't know. You want to be a pastor like your dad? And he says, hell no. And my heart breaks and I think, because mm. is there anything worse than feeling like you failed as a parent? There's nothing. But I don't think this is a failure. Because I, I haven't raised a dissident. I've raised a kid with a good attitude who's not thumbing his nose. And so when I said, why this good young man plainly explained to me, Carol, that some of his experiences of life aren't lining up with the abstract concepts of Christianity Stevie was taught and he's experiencing dissonance. Parker Palmer said it's amazing and I quote this often it's amazing that a religion that says it's rooted in the idea of incarnation so often and so freely gets lost in disembodied concepts. My son is having an incarnational experience right now that has been with the Christian church from our earliest days. The bottom line is, those of us raised religiously, we believe certain things about God. Our wiring is set pre-critical when we are vulnerable, when our concrete is wet. We have ideas about God that are abstract and then we live enough life that incarnational experiences that we cannot get around 
realities come to us, and these realities are dissonant with our received dogma, right? And every, that's not just religiously, that's politically. That's in every way. We are, we are brought up to believe a certain thing and then we have experiences that, that seem at odds with what we were taught. And this is when the real soul-making journey begins because you have several options at this point, options that are some more mature than others. You literally can now become so certain of your experiences that you jettison your received dogma and you just become a rebel who is always thumbing your nose and knowing better, which, which is a, a very immature thing for an 18-year-old to do, to then think, okay, this must be wrong because my experiences are correct, and even more than that, my interpretation of my experiences are correct, and so I'm just going to blow off everything from my tradition, throw it all away, and move on. The more mature thing to do at these moments in life, and this is the season of Eastertide, and this is a really important thing, such an important thing, I, I, I can't say it well enough. Eastertide is the season when the Jesus you have known, the God you have known, the Bible you have known, the religion you have known, the politics you have known, the life you have known, the universe you have known, the you you have known, has died. And it's broken your heart and you, like the disciples, have run as far as you can in the opposite direction till you hit water and you just are forgetting the whole deal. Eastertide is that season for people who have thrown away tradition, who have thrown away everything they have known because it died. Eastertide is a season of resurrection and resurrection is not resuscitation. Resurrection is not simply the recapturing of what was. It is the opening of what was to become something entirely new and beyond. And Eastertide is that season for people like Stan Jr. to say, I cannot reconcile what I am intuiting and experiencing with what I was taught. But I'm not going to throw it all away and make myself God. I am going to take what I have experienced back to what I was taught and Eastertide is the season between resurrection and ascension. It is that awkward season when we are reappropriating, readjusting, and we are open for the divine to speak to us anew. And it's, it's not Pentecost because Pentecost is when the whole thing comes full circle and the Spirit takes you back and you just enter a whole new dimension with Jesus, you hold, a whole dimension with God. That's a wonderful time, but it is incredibly wonderful to me that in our, in our story, in our narrative, there was a death and there was a burial and there was a resurrection and the resurrection did not immediately get followed the next day by a Pentecost and an outpouring of the Spirit and immediate reappropriation. But there was a, a period of 40 to 50 days where people were thrown off kilter and they were discombobulated. And either God is sadistic or there is something incredibly beneficial and soul-making about the process itself. And I think, as I've watched people this week struggle on my Facebook, dear people in my life struggle, 
And, and so many of them struggle because they're so recalcitrant. I mean, the breaks in their life are going to come from the rigidity. And, and you know it and you can see it coming and there should be nothing more than compassion for that. But you watch them struggling within the bounds of an absolute certainty. They have known, one of them privately told me, I believe this when I was 16 years old, I am in my early 70s and I have never changed my thought on this matter. And I, I thought to myself, and that's good? But for them that seemed absolutely good. That Steve, I could believe something at 7 or 12 or 16 and it could never change because it was the truth. And I, I think the thing that is most sad to me is the best thing about the process of having Jesus die or your Christianity die or your religion die or your Judaism die or whatever it is, the, the, the most important part of that death is not that a couple of days later it resurrects and you get it back because then even the resurrected Christ says, let me go. I mean, it's the same message. The death is let me go. The resurrection is still let me go. And then even the 40 days when they're with him, at the end of the 40 days, he says, meet me at Olivet. We're going to start this thing over. And they get to Olivet and they're like, okay, 40 days of you coming in and out, 40 days of processing a death and all that stuff. We got it figured out now. And Jesus said, really? Yes. The Bible says they literally worshiped him there. I mean, that was, they're going to build a church now on Olivet. And Jesus starts floating away. And the message is still the same. Let me go. Because Jesus, as the embodiment of the dynamic life of God and all that is, is just that, never static, always dynamic. And when the Christian church believed and said that when the Spirit fell at Pentecost ten days after the ascension, that that was the final answer. And this was the final understanding. And whatever those who were there said in the next 30 years by writing was what we were bound to for the next million years. You, it breaks my heart because we missed the point. The point was that his life for 30 years didn't define it, his death didn't define it, his resurrection didn't define it, the 40 years didn't define it, the ascension didn't define it, any more than Pentecost defined it. What was given to us was not a set of doctrines at any of those points that we should have clung to. What was given to us was a manner of doing spirituality, which is realizing there is so di something so dynamic and alive here that we always have to be about the uncomfortable process of letting go. And as they stared into the heavens thinking, now how can we, what are we going to do? We thought we was gonna, he was going to stay with us. Now he's, so we're going to make, we're going to make a church around the idea of a floating savior. And the angels looked at them and said what they still say to us today. And this is at the heart of the Christian spirituality. The angels looked at them and said, stop staring. Orthodoxy is about staring. 
Truth, as we were told it, is about gazing and fixing. And, as, and I think that, you know, he's, he's died, he's resurrected, he's done all these miracles. Now he's floating into the heavens. That's something to stare at. And yet the true message of Christianity is quit staring. Why stand you here gazing and worshiping? Instead of that, go to Jerusalem for the next. And they went to Jerusalem, and that's another story, and they experienced something they could have never, ever predicted. And I suppose the difference between tradition, the traditional Christianity I understood and the progressive Christianity I'm a part of now is I don't, I don't stare anymore. I just don't stare anymore. And the less I stare and the more I go, the more life and God continue to blow my mind over and over and over again. Can you say amen? Let's pray. Lord, this is good that we are here. And it is good that we go from here. Thank you for not creating starers. Thank you for creating more than gazers. Thank you for giving us a spirituality that is dynamic and fluid and flowing and that we are always moving into the dynamic that is God. Thank you that this was taught us in the life of one named Jesus, one who was always calling us to let go. May we let go. May our fears be assuaged and may our hearts get excited for a beautiful journey ahead. We pray these things in the name of something and one bigger than we can imagine. In the name of Christ, we pray. God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Go. I hope your mind gets blown this week.